Um, Matthew chapter 6. Verse 5. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. Well, of course not. Um, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Prayer is the vital function of our spiritual lives. It is its heartbeat and respiration. Break that connection and the lights go out. It's like unplugging an appliance. It's just not going to work. Without prayer, Christian spirituality does not work. You know, God did not call the temple a schoolhouse. He said it was his house of prayer for all nations, that is, all nations could come to. This is how he defined it. Whatever else took place in the temple, people met God or they were to meet God. It's possible to construct a religious life without prayer, but it will be an empty shell. It won't be filled with the life of God. And what's the point? Now, even when people do pray, their prayers can go wrong. And under certain conditions, God will refuse to answer prayers that go wrong. You know, God complained to the people of Judah, to the prophet Jeremiah, that they had rejected his word. They had broken his covenant. And um, therefore, he says, though they will cry to me, I will not listen to them. That's prayer that goes wrong. Jesus tells us today in our text two ways that prayers can go wrong. And these are prayers that never reach God. I mean, that's how wrong they are. They they never make it to heaven. And this is the second negative example that he's given us of that inferior righteousness that consists of um, obeying the letter of the law and not getting to the deeper level of it. And this negative example begins like the first. The first was, when you give to the poor, and now we have, when you pray. The first way that prayer can go wrong, um, and this way we learn from the hypocrites, and Jesus says, don't be like them. Their prayers go wrong. Um, I mentioned last week that the word hypocrite in in the Greek, was sometimes used of stage actors. But I think it's important for us to realize these people were not acting. This was not pretend prayer to them. To them, uh, this was the real thing. They, They meant these prayers. They were sincere. They were devout. But still, there was a disconnect. There was a contradiction. Something between their heart and their... Actions did not add up. They were disconnected from their own inner life. Remember that 
the spiritual life Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount is a whole person. The inner life, the, the, the internal and the external are one. They're not two separate things. Later on, when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, the greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. That's the whole person, all in. The complete devotion of united internal life and external life. Now, the, the hypocrites then were engaged in this godly activity with godless hearts. If you looked at them, the best that you could surmise was, oh, they're praying to God. But something else was going on in their hearts. This happens easily, by the way. What was in their hearts? Jesus said, well, they love to stand in the synagogues and on the street corners and pray to be seen by others. The driving force of their public prayers, or their very public showy prayers, was not the prayer itself, but to be seen or to shine. The same word was used earlier when Jesus said, a city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. In World War I, we found out that snipers could spot a cigarette being lit from a mile away at night. These people want to shine. They, they want to stand out. They, they want to make people take notice. They love doing this, Jesus said. It, it wasn't only a religious practice or an unconscious attempt to meet an emotional need or an ego need. They loved the attention that they got from these theatrics. Um, why pray on the street corner? I wonder, and I, I imagine, I'm guessing, I assume that soapbox preachers bring their own soapbox. It's not like, you know, spontaneously, oh, God's given me a message, I need to find a soapbox. Um, they come prepared. And, and it's kind of like the Pharisees doing that. They get to the street corner, well, why are you praying here on the street corner? Oh, I was just so overwhelmed. I, had to, I, I couldn't wait till I got to the synagogue. I just had to pray here. Or I needed to bless the whole world with my wonderful prayers. Um, why just you know, keep it hidden? H however, um, that's what motivated them, being known for their piety. Jesus' assessment of that type of prayer, he says, they have their reward. One concern that every Christian has with prayer, one time or another, is that my prayer gets answered. In fact, write a book on how to guarantee that your prayer gets answered and you'll make a lot of money. Because every Christian wants to know that. Um, a lot of Christians ask, why doesn't God answer my prayer? The, um, 
I hear Jesus saying, when the hypocrites pray like this, their prayer is answered right there on the spot. That is, God's responding to what's in their heart, not to what they're saying or doing. That, that's an arrow that doesn't reach its target. But what's inside their heart, I want to be noticed for my prayers. So they are noticed. They received the response they wanted. They prayed to people, and they got the attention of people. You have your reward. No other response would arrive from heaven. They have their reward, their answer to prayer, their prayer right now. As soon as someone is impressed with my piety, you know, I don't know that that's ever happened. <laughs> um, my impiety, yes, that has distressed some people, but um, as soon as someone is impressed with, with my piety, well, first of all, I'm flattered, um, when they say, oh, that guy isn't afraid to pray anywhere, or when they, they pray, when they say, her prayers are so lovely, so eloquent, and so moving, we have our reward. These prayers don't reach God because they're aimed at a different target than God. Now, it's easy to go overboard in this. If someone tells you, wow, uh, I was really moved by your prayer this morning or whatever, um, to, to run from that. Say, don't say that, don't say that. You're not my reward. You know, I don't want my reward here on earth. I want it in heaven. You know, don't say such a thing. And, and this happens. You know, uh, I had a friend one time, she was asked to sing a song at a women's meeting. And she sang her song. She had written herself. She played the guitar. She sang her song. And this woman came up to her afterwards who felt something in her song. The woman who sang had been severely abused as a child and carried that in her, and it came out in her music. And the woman who heard it had also suffered abuse. And she said, I, I really enjoyed your song. I got a lot out of it. And the woman who sang said, oh, that wasn't me. That was the Lord. And the other woman said, well, it looked like you. <laughs> and I thought that was a good way to, to respond to that. You say, well, I, don't, I don't want to take reward for you know, my singing. Well, look, take a compliment anyway. It doesn't have to be a reward. If your heart's sincere in what you do, you don't have to worry about it. If your heart and your actions are one, and you do anything for God, then if someone compliments you, just accept it. <laughs> um, some of us deflect compliments because we don't want to be tempted to think too much of ourselves or we don't want a reward on earth. And some of us deflect compliments because we just don't believe it. You know, why would you say that to me? You're lying. You're, you're after something. You're trying to sell me something. Um, and so we deflect. Or we don't want to feel obligated to return a compliment or a favor. We deflect. Right? But really, pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. And to hear a good word from someone once in a while is a healthy thing. 
We just, you know, we just have to be, we just have to walk through these things with wisdom. Anyway, in verse 6, Jesus tells us how he wants us to pray. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Hypocrites go public. Jesus says, go private. I don't think... Now, this is a guy with like 50 years of experience, probably more, come to think of it, but I I don't think that it's possible to pray publicly and not be aware of your human audience. You know, uh, that's what you can see. That's that's who you know is here for sure. Um, And in some way, because you're aware of your human audience, your prayer addresses them too. And so we tailor our prayers to their ears. We want them to understand what we say. Hopefully, we're praying their needs as well as ours. You know, there's a, there's a communal, uh, uh, corporate interest in what we're praying. We all, we all want to see God's kingdom come, his will be done. And we want them to be able to agree with what we pray. We want them to be able to say Amen. But even still, the prayer should be like them overhearing a conversation. I might be on the phone talking to someone, expressing the concerns of my whole family, and my family might be listening, but that's not the point for me. I'm talking to God. And though my prayer is shaped by the community and its concerns, the conversation is with him. And it is a conversation. It's, it's not that we're never supposed to pray in public. I mean, there's so many public prayers in scripture. And later on, Jesus will even talk about two or three agreeing together in prayer uh, and, and asking God for things. But there's always a risk involved, and he's telling us to resist it. Resist falling into the trap of the hypocrite. Be aware of your attitude, of your motivation. Be aware of what's going on in your heart when you pray in public. Now, that's why it's so much easier to just go off and lock yourself in a closet when you pray um, because you know why you're there. Uh, By the way... um, some Christians have taken this really literally. They've gone into their closets to pray. Um, I did that early on when I was quite the literalist of the King James Version. And, um, and I found out that my shoes smell <laughs> in a way that was not conducive to prayer. Um, so I decided maybe I shouldn't kneel in my closet. But you know, the, the clothes on the hangers weren't any better. So... Um, the inner room uh, of a home was used for storage. It's like your pantry. Um, or for privacy. So there were you know, room additions or maybe even a small room outside the house. 
And guests were not allowed to go there. Otherwise, most homes in uh, that part of the world in Jesus' time, uh, people left their doors open during the day. And uh, anyone was welcome to, to come and to walk in. So Jesus says, go to that place where guests aren't allowed, where you're not going to be tempted to show off with your prayers. And, and take an extra precaution, close the door. Oh, I went into my closet today. Oh, we know. You left the door open. Everyone heard you. <laughs> and, and putting it over the PA, that was a mistake. <clears throat> he says, go into this, this inner room and close the door. So it's just you and God. And there, pray to your father who is in secret. This is the whole point. This is the objective. That's, that's the target you want to hit. Pray to your father. So having a sense of this connection with God is really the beginning of a prayer. And I think that it's, for me, I find that it helps to just sit in silence for a moment and think about my connection with God, try to bring awareness to it as much as possible before I say anything. Because otherwise, my own needs and my own words take over my prayer. And I'm just giving him my grocery list. And, you know, help this, resolve that, get rid of so-and-so, um, I mean, because you can. Um, you know, whatever. And... Um, I can pray like that, and when I'm done praying, have more anxiety than when I began. Because I've just gone over all the, the things that are bugging me, and I haven't really spoken to my Father who is in heaven. Now, if I don't want to have anxiety, if I just focus on my Father who is in heaven, the anxiety goes away all by itself. Because in God's presence, there's something else to be taken up with. And fear melts away. What are we going to do, God? What are we going to do, God? What are we going to? Oh, yeah. You're God. Okay. It's all okay. Your father who is in secret. This has bothered a few biblical scholars, and I don't really understand why. You know, that Jesus describes God as being in secret or hidden. Um, the same Greek word can be translated both ways. I mentioned that last week. Um, yet it's a truth that's repeated in Scripture. Um, God told Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. And John, in the first chapter of John, said, no one has seen God at any time. God transcends our sense perception. His, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as heaven is above the earth. And, and that's the distinction that Jesus makes frequently in the Sermon on the Mount. Heaven and earth. And he is in heaven. And we're on earth. And we're adapted for the earth. And God is hidden from us for now. You know, that is the fullness of his person. So if we're told to seek God, 
Where do we go looking? Jerusalem? Calvary Chapel, Costa Mecca? <laughs> Not in any geographical place. You don't have to, you know, uh, tramp all over the world in search of God. And we don't go looking with our eyes, our ears, even with our critical thinking skills. The very essence of prayer is not mind to mind. Now, it's, it's hard to get past that. I'm thinking up all the things I should say. I'm thinking about how he might respond. That's not really the essence. The essence is spirit to spirit. If I'm going to seek God, it's going to be with my spirit. And if I find God, it will be, as Jesus said, those that worship God must worship him in spirit and truth, for God is spirit. Be spirit to spirit. There will be more than a conversation, there will be a connection, even a union, such as it is. The very essence of prayer is not mind to mind, it's spirit to spirit. And that's why the discipline of silence is so important. We quiet our mind. We quiet our thoughts. And if they won't be quiet, we give them something else to do so that our spirit can connect to God's spirit. And if we don't sit in silence and listen and and allow God's spirit to take the initiative with us, Something's missing from our prayer life that could make it, what, more enjoyable? Yes. More real? Yes. More meaningful? All of the above. So when I sit in silence, oh, my mind wanders. Bring it back. Come back to your breath. This is right now. Breath is always... Here and now. Oh, no, no. I took a breath yesterday. Doesn't work that way. It's always today. It's always this moment. I'm breathing. Come back to that. Oh, if I, if I do that, I'm going to have to, in, in five minutes, I'm going to have to return 25 times. Well, good. Good. It, you know, when you start out, it's the returning that counts. My mind wandered, and I brought it back. Mind wandered, it came back to my heart, back to my spirit. And the more that we do that, we find the longer we start to go without the mind wandering away, and the more quickly we bring it back. Until we can take a breath, become aware of God's presence, and just be with him in joy for a good period of time. Even if the rest of our life is in ruins. Verse 7, here's the second way that prayer can go wrong. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetitions as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. The second way that prayer can go go wrong, we learn from the Gentiles. Now, in Matthew, um, this word Gentile is used as a generalization, uh, and it has to do with people who have no knowledge of the true God. 
And sometimes that includes people of Israel. So it's not just ethnically Gentiles, the way the world is divided in the Old Testament between the, the Israel and the Goyim, the, the Gentiles. Here it's those who know God through Jesus and those who do not know God sometimes. But as a generalization, it's people who do not, do not have any knowledge of the true God, who've never been exposed to his revelation. However, in Matthew's gospel, when Gentiles meet God in Jesus, they go all in. There's a centurion, a Roman centurion. There's a Gentile woman. And Jesus pays tribute to both of them. He says, I, you know, what great faith. Of the centurion, he says, I have not seen faith as great as this in all of Israel. Of both of them, he said, your faith is great. To his disciples said, oh, you have little faith. More than once. In fact, he'll talk to Israel about their little faith more times than he talks about Gentile faith. And each time, it's the little faith of Israel and it's the great faith of the Gentiles. So um, this generalization has to do with people who do not know God, um, who don't know his revelation, and, um, and when they convert, heaven will be filled with them well, many of the self-righteous people who thought they were a shoe in will be on the outside looking in. He says, don't use meaningless repetitions. The uh, New Living Translation says, don't babble on. And that's a very good translation. That's much closer to what the Greek is saying. Don't cram a bunch of words into your prayers so many words that it becomes tedious and stops making sense. When a speaker, such as myself, goes on too long, at some point he stops making sense. You know, we have like um, attention peaks. Like every 12 minutes, our attention reaches its peak and it falls off and we're thinking about something else. What am I going to have for lunch today? Wow, what a beautiful day. Should I go to the beach? Um, So... You know, that this happens while I'm talking doesn't really bother me that much because even while I'm talking, my mind does the same thing. Um, What was I going to say? Uh, Don't use a bunch of words. Um, When a person talks too much, after a while it becomes yada, yada, yada. That's exactly what what Jesus describes with this this, this strange word used only here in the New Testament, translated meaningless repetitions. And and really, it's an onomatopoeia. Um, The word sounds like nonsense when you say it. And uh, gobbledygook, however that goes. Um, I have a problem with that. I don't think that, that Christians realize how much they fill their prayers with cliches. It, it, you know, it, just, it does make praying easier. I mean, there's a reason why cliches stick. But um, there are two problems that I see with cl- cliches. First of all, they don't require any thought. I can pray the most thoughtless prayers because I'm just saying things I've heard before. Did you ever read Elmer Gantry by Sinclair Lewis? Okay. 
um, when Elmer Gantry, the night of his conversion, you know, here he was, a pagan five minutes ago, and all of a sudden he's praying a prayer that astounds those who hear him. He's down at the altar, this athlete evangelist gives the message. Elmer Gantry is moved, probably partly by the, the sermon, the charisma of the speaker, and the few nips of alcohol he had before he went into the service. But he's deeply moved, and, and he's just you know, coming up with this glorious prayer that everyone marvels at. And Sinclair Lewis points out that he, he really did not speak that from his heart, but he strung together this beaded necklace of cliches that he had heard all his life growing up in the church. Um, and when I read that, it pissed me off. Because I thought, Sinclair Lewis is on to us. <laughs> you know, he, he knows. Uh, our dependence on cliches for our prayers. Um, okay, so that's the first problem, is that you can pray thoughtless prayers if you just use a bunch of cliches. The second problem is you haven't made the prayer your own. Remember your elementary school teacher? Put that in your own words. Put that in your own words. Why? Because if you can put it in your own words, then you grasp it. You understand it. It belongs to you. You own it. And I don't own the prayers I pray that are all cliché. I grew up in a tradition that prided itself on not reading prayers from a book. Those literate, you know, those Roman Catholic, you know, with their liturgy, um, those Episcopalians with their Book of Common Prayer and all that stuff. We rejected the liturgy because we were taught to rely on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when we prayed. Oh, just let the Holy Spirit anoint you, cliche, um, <laughs> so that what you speak, it, you know, spontaneously comes straight from God. And what happened? We prayed the same spontaneous prayers over and over and over again. In other words, we created our own liturgy, our own inferior liturgy because it lacked the depth of thought and understanding and scripture that's in the written, published liturgies. And we were the poorer for it. We were not richer because we had the Holy Spirit inspiring us. We were poor because we prayed a bunch of Pentecostal cliches. One other thing before I move on. This needs to be said. You do not have to pray in King James English. <laughs> Thou, O Lord, art our blessed Heavenly Father, and for thy great bounty we give thee thanks. How darest we do otherwise? Um, <laughs> verily. Shame on you. Um, I just said you don't have to. Um, all right. It's, it's fine if you do. If, I mean, if you know what most people can't because they don't know the King James that well. And they start off King James, and then they throw in some slang, or, or they say R instead of art. It can never be R if it's King James. It can never be does so. It has to be dust, D-O-S-T. Thou dost protest too much. Whoa, King James got from Shakespeare, or the other way around. Anyway, you don't have to pray King James. 
It doesn't make your prayer more acceptable. It doesn't make it holier. I'm sure sometimes the Lord says, what? (laughs) Why do Gentiles fill their prayers with words? Because they don't know if the gods are listening. They don't know if the gods care. They have no assurance that they're being heard. So they fill their prayers with words to try to make the gods care, to try to make them hear. You know, uh, Elijah, the prophet, had this, this showdown with the false prophets of the Baal cult. There, like 400 priests and prophets showed up for this. And he said, we're going to make two altars. You make an altar to your gods, God. I'll make an altar to the Lord God. And whichever God answers by sending fire from heaven on the altar, that will be the true God. And all the people said, that sounds good. And so he says, you can go first. So the prophets of Baal went first. And they were praying, throwing themselves on the ground until noon. And then Elijah started teasing them. He said, hey, you guys, okay, nothing's happened yet. Maybe... um, your God has gone for a walk. Maybe he's taking an afternoon nap. Maybe he's using the bathroom. Um, he said, why don't you try harder? And they fell for it. They took the bait. They began to cry aloud and cut themselves until the blood gushed out because they did not know why their God was not answering them. They did not know how to get their God's attention. They were unable to. That's how the Gentiles pray, and it's why they use so many words, because they don't know any better. Uh, If you want to make a point with someone, if you insist on getting your point across, and either they're not listening or they don't seem to get it, you do the same thing. You just keep talking. Maybe if I say it this way, maybe if I say it that way, maybe eventually they'll understand. I mean, don't you? I do. I'm doing it right now. (laughs) (laughs) You have to know God to trust him. And you have to trust God to know your prayer was answered. These prayers of the Gentiles don't reach God because they're not combined with trust and knowing. In verse 8, Jesus gives us some encouragement and reassurance, and I think we need it at this point. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Do not be like them, because you're not in the dark like them. Our simple, childlike prayers are sufficient. Our Father smiles at our simple prayers because he already knew what we were going to ask anyway. And that's what Jesus says. Your Father knows. Prayer is not telling God something he doesn't know. Oh, and by the way, God, just in case you didn't read the news this morning, it's not necessary to argue with God. It's not necessary to try to make him feel sorry for you. We 
we just open our hearts to him. He was there with the answer before the need even arrived. Or as Helmut Thielke says, we're knocking on a door that's already open. So you don't have to, to make a bunch of noise. Once we connect with God, once we connect with God, words are optional. We read in the Gospel of Luke about a time when Jesus was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Not lose heart over our life's circumstances. Not lose heart over world events. Not lose heart over all the tragedy or all the violence or all the drugs or whatever. Not to lose heart over how our children are doing today. But instead, to become aware of our Heavenly Father in this present moment and in that be filled with his grace, be lifted above and walk again in faith. Would you stand with me, please? Thank you for your patience. Um, I love you. God loves you. May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.